Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. The title of my sermon is The Great White Throne. When Nicole and I were at this church, even before we were married, our pastor would do this illustrated sermon called The Great White Throne Judgment. It was kind of spooky. (laughs) But what we did, we would like, uh, he worked our tails to get ready for an illustrated sermon. So we would come in on Friday or Saturday, and first of all, we would, the, it was a large church, we would have to staple, in the old church, we would have to staple sheets all over the stage, all over the choir loft, all over the walls, and even up onto the ceiling. We got scaffolding, and we're stapling sheets, white sheets. It was white. White, 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 and then we had a black light so that we could celebrate diversity with the blacks and the whites. No, no. Uh, turn the black light so it really... <laughs> Did I just meddle? Did I... You were there, right? And it was just, it was amazing. It was spectacular, and there was this big throne we would build. And then, did it help me? Help me if, if Nicole, if, if I'm correct, did we change the name of it? Because we did it every year. Did we change the name of it to great, to the Hotel Hallelujah? No. Two separate ones because there was this one, it was almost the same kind of message though because we built two entrances to big hotels. One was hell, one was hell, and one was heaven. And so, uh, but then people got cast into the lake of fire and there was screaming and gnashing of teeth. But it was just this beautiful, spectacular picture of, of the final day, what we all spend our life pursuing the purposes of God because we know that one day we'll all stand before him. What I love about the Apostle John is, is, and I think I've shared it with you, the, the book of John, the fourth gospel, is actually a bookend of the life of John. And the other bookend is the book of Revelation. He also wrote first and second, third John. So these are writings that were written many years apart, but they're bookends of his life. But the same man that wrote, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, Whoever believes in him will not perish. It's the same man that wrote, if your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. We don't like the sound of that, but it's the word. So that's what I'm going to attempt to talk about today. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, let me get it right. I'm going to first read to you the 20th chapter of Revelation, starting with verse 11. I'm going to read the New King James Version first. Listen to every word. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth 
and the heaven fled away. I don't know that I ever paid attention and realized that it said that until I started studying this week. I'm going to say that line again. From whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, the heaven and the earth. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We don't like the sound of that, but there it is, right there. Revelation 20, verse 15. I'll read the message translation. I like the way it breaks it down. I saw a great white throne and the one enthroned. Nothing could stand before or against the presence. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth. And then I saw all the dead great and small standing there before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books by the way they had lived. Sea released its dead, death and hell turned in their dead. Each man and woman was judged by the way he or she had lived. Then death and hell were hurled into lake fire. This is the second death, lake fire. Anyone whose name was not found inscribed in the book of life was hurled into lake fire. Okay, before I start breaking this down, I want to tell you about the books I've been digging through over the last six, eight months. This We're in the eighth month, right? Been writing... Uh, this all began a year ago, May. I woke up in the morning and I heard the Lord, the Lord's voice woke me up and said, write the revelation of Jesus. And I was like, what in the world? But I've given him my yes. He's got my yes. Whatever he says, he gets my yes. And so I woke Nicole up and I said, I just heard the Lord say, write the revelation of Jesus. And I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so, uh, 18 songs later, writing a book to try to expound on the songs, I found myself uh, preparing chapters in a book, and I just thought, why don't we just preach these chapters as I, as I go through them, that I'll, I'll kill two birds. Because <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. And so I've been uh, just 
perusing through Eugene Peterson. He is the man that wrote the message translation. He has a book on the book of Revelation called Reverse Thunder. I would encourage you to get it. I want to say thank you to Zanita for recommending this book. It's called Discipleship on the Edge, an expository journey through the book of Revelation. When she uh, realized the path I was on, she had this book and recommended it to Nicole, and Nicole ordered it immediately, and it is just rocking my world. Uh, it's, I love the language. So as we're talking about books being opened, I thought I would do a little illustrated sermon. and uh, No text in all of Scripture. poses the fundamental issues with greater seriousness or urgency than Revelation, the 20th chapter, verses 11 through 15, what we know as the great white throne judgment. The text teaches us that one day, each of us is going to stand before that throne. And we're going to be asked to give, a, give an account of our lives. Who can stand in that day? And if anyone can, on what basis can you stand? It's a heavy question. But I trust by the time we get to the end of it, you'll have a good idea. It is already 1134, so I apologize not at all <laughs> for getting started here. And I don't know when it's going to be done. Uh, and I'm going till the end. And I'm not skipping anything. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. If you were to die tonight in finding your, you found yourself standing before God, and God were to ask you, why should I let you enjoy eternity with me? What would you say? Have you ever been posed that question in your life? Maybe before you got saved, anybody ever asked you that question? If you died today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? You ever been asked that question? Have you ever asked anyone that question? In um, most evangelism programs, that is the question everyone is taught to use, to go for the jugular. It's like sometimes people, there's one particular evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion. And the, these people are usually sent out by, in groups of two or three, and they, they find people in public at the mall. Like, John, you're really, you would be really good at this because you're, uh, you're just, this is who you are. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but so their prayer is, they, you know, they're going to meet someone. They're going to just talk and get to know them. They're going to try to be overbearing and push, you know, feel pushy. But at some point, they trust the Holy Spirit to lead them to the place where they could ask this question. If you were to die tonight, and find yourself standing before God 
and God were to ask you, why should I let you spend eternity with me? What would you say? What would you say? What, 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 would, what would you say? You, those of us that live for Jesus and the day comes and we stand before him, what will be your answer? It's sobering. I think, so it's so sobering that uh, we as a people have kind of misunderstood. It's, it's, it's really kind of, it can be frightening. I remember as a kid, I was, I, was I, I, I went to the altar every Sunday and asked God to forgive me for my sins. You know, I would, it's like, I even got to this place where I would lay down, God, if I did anything today that was a sin. Well, you realize that's not confessing, right? That's, that's not repenting. You're just like, if there's anything, when you know what you did. And you have the audacity to say, God, if there's anything, if there's anything, when you cussed in traffic, God, if I did anything, I'm not suggesting that cussing in traffic is going to send you to hell. But who knows? <laughs> God help us all. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, verse 11. It was so awesome, so holy that earth and heaven fled away. Earth and heaven seek to hide from his presence. Why? Because they are unfit to stand before his holiness. They're contaminated beyond the possibility of cleansing. This is why there has to be a new heaven and a new earth. But where can old earth where can old heaven flee? Where can they go from the one who sits on the throne where he's not already present? Where can you and I go where the one seated on the throne is not already present? David wrote, if I send into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed, this is an incredible statement. If I make my bed in hell, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. Where can I go from your spirit? John watches the scene unfold. Books, plural, books, many books, lots of books are opened. Presumably, as many books as there are people. A lot of books. I can't, I can't fathom where they keep all of these books. A book for every person, on every person, about every person. It's not just the rich and famous who get biographies written about them. A biography is being written by on each one of us, lots of books. 
Then John sees another book, singular. It's called the book of life. It's clearly the main image in this scene. John sees the sea give up the dead. I'm just kind of recapping the scripture, this text today. John sees the sea give up the dead which were in it. For John, the sea represents the powerful forces of chaos which seek to suck our world into darkness and disorder. That's what water represents to him. He sees death and Hades give up the dead. He sees those whose names were not found in the book of life thrown into the lake of fire. It's the same place where the evil trinity, the the dragon and the two beasts, his two beasts are thrown. Revelations, the 20th chapter, these verses that we just read, has to be the most colorful, kaleidoscopic is a big word. <laughs> you ever have one of those little things you look in and all the colors change? At every word, this, this, the scene is spectacular when you consider what it must look like. People a number so great you can't even count them. Standing before this huge stage in a church with sheets stapled all over it. <laughs> uh, okay. I gotta take this off now, all right, see? I just got warm <laughs> thinking about hell. <laughs> If you were to die tonight, find yourself in that scene and God were to ask you, why should I let you enter the new heaven and the new earth and enjoy eternal life with me? What would your answer be? So I want to go back and just kind of walk through this text and, and get through it as as soon as I can, but I'm not hurrying. That's really kind of word, weird to say soon and hurry, and it, it's kind of like an oxymoron. Uh, verse 11, I saw a great white throne. The throne is the dominant picture. It's the dominant thing in the book. From, and from the whole book of Revelation, in the fourth chapter, the second verse, Onward, John refers to a throne or thrones 38 times. It's interesting now. We're almost getting to the end, and I'm like, I almost want to start over because I, 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 I didn't do, I didn't like dig out the whole book before we started on the first chapter. Uh, it's been this process for me, digging and digging and digging, and I'm not done digging. I've still got a lot to write uh, for the book, but uh, it's amazing when you back up and look at the whole picture. And he, there's 38 
times that John refers to a throne. The whole drama of the book of Revelation is played out around a throne. There are, in fact, seven main visions of the throne in the book of Revelation. Most of the hymns and the choruses that we, that we find in the book of Revelation are around the throne. The first throne room scene is found in Revelations, the fourth chapter, the first verse, and it goes all the way to the fifth chapter and the 14th verse, so it's pretty lengthy. We're not going to read that text. But he said, I saw a door standing open in heaven. Do you remember that? Yeah. When, he, when he, was, he turned, he heard a loud voice, he turned, and a door was open in heaven. you remember that? And look, a throne with someone sitting on it. The throne is not vacant. It's not up for grabs. Many have tried to take it from the one who sits on it, but none have succeeded. None can succeed. None will succeed. Around the throne, there is a rainbow. I remember sharing that on that one of those first Sundays, like, like an emerald in appearance, the sign of God's mercy and faithfulness. Around the throne were 24 other thrones with 24 elders sitting on them. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Before the throne are seven lamps of fire representing the sevenfold spirit of God. Before the throne is a sea of glass. You remember all these images as we've shared from week to week? Around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes who day and night do not cease to sing holy, holy, holy. In the middle of the throne, right in the very center, in the very center of the one who sits on the throne is a lamb. Remember, uh, there was, John wept because there was no one found worthy. And, and he said, uh, behold, here's the loud voice. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has been found worthy. And he turns to see the lion. And instead of a lion, he sees a lamb. All of creation, humans and angels cry out in this chapter, worthy is the lamb. Yeah. Worthy, everyone say, worthy is the lamb. Now, I just want you to get, go beyond just saying it with your intellect, and I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see the lamb, and I want you to look at his face and say, worthy is the lamb. The second throne room scene is in the seventh chapter of Revelation. John sees a great multitude that no one could count. Seventh chapter, verse nine, from every nation and tribe and people group standing before the throne and the lamb. 
they cry out, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And they hear the wonderful promise for the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. We've all had sad moments, but you know, John, you really, uh, you, after your journey uh, to here, and God will wipe away every tear. The third throne room scene is in the eighth chapter of Revelation, verses one through four. And at this particular scene, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour as all the prayers of the saints ascend to the throne. I, I, uh, the fourth throne room scene is found in Revelations, the 11th chapter, verses 15 through 18, where loud voices in heaven are saying what Handel's Messiah made famous, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. I love that book that you gave me. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is verse 15. And the 24 elders who sit on the 24 thrones around the throne fall on their faces and cry out, we give you thanks. O oh Lord God, the Almighty, who is and was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Yeah. We wrote that in a song, uh, and, and, and you, we haven't shared it with you yet, but the, what we, we kind of rephrased a little bit. It says, you took your power and you took over. Yeah. The fifth throne room scene is in the 16th chapter, I just preached on this a few weeks ago, and it's the longest vision in the book. It begins the 16th chapter, verse 17, and it goes all the way to 17, 18, and 19, all the way to verse 5. It's the longest. It begins with a loud voice from the, from the throne saying in verse 17 of chapter 16, it is done. The wrath of God is finished. From the throne, we see the fall of Babylon, the great. Babylon, the harlot, the mother of harlots. The loud voices were singing, hallelujah. Then it ends with John hearing the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters, peals of thunder singing, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That concluded chapter 19, verse seven. Then we come to the seventh throne room scene found in the 20th chapter, our text today, starting with verse 11. I'm struck with this fact that all of the singing stops 
All of the voices are no longer shouting. The rainbow is not mentioned. Neither are the 24 other thrones. Not the four living creatures or the seven lamps of fire. Not the incense. Everything we have come to know about the throne up to this point moves out of the way. So that the throne itself occupies the whole space. A great white throne, says John. A mega white throne, larger than the stage in the church up in Chicago, (laughs) much bigger. A great white throne. White is the color of purity and the color of justice. So we're talking about a throne, and now we're going to talk about he who sat on the throne. Who is the he? Who is it? Is he God or is he the lamb? Is he the father or is he Jesus? The, I remember there was a friend of mine. We used to argue about uh, the Trinity. And so I grew up in a Pentecostal church with the church of God and the assembly of God where they're strong believers in the Trinity. And this friend was from the United Pentecostal church. And I was saying, well, the Bible says this. And her response was, well, my grandpa said this. And I said, but the Bible says this. And well, but my grandpa said this. And she finally says, when I finally get to heaven, I'm going to drag you up to the throne and say, how many do you see? There was another man we were arguing and, uh, and we were just, you know, there's, there, we all have our scriptures that we can argue. And so there was this one preacher that I said, well, what about when Stephen was being stoned and he said, I see Jesus at the right hand of the father. And his response was, well, you'd be seeing double too if you were being hit in the head with a bunch of rocks. <laughs> Not a good answer, but that was his answer. Who is the he? Who is it? Who is it that does the judging in the end? We're going to try to cover it. Paul said in Romans 14.10, he spoke about the judgment seat of God. But then in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter and the 10th verse, he speaks about the judgment seat of Christ. Why can't y'all just talk? The same language. I mean, you're, you wrote both of these books. <laughs> and then he, remember the story in the, it's in the 17th chapter of Acts when he's uh, meeting with the philosophers on Mars Hill. Paul says, God will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished Proof to all by raising him from the dead. I think he's given us a little clue here. Who sits on the bench that day? Jesus says in his parable 
about the sheep and the goats. I think it's in Matthew 25. He says, and when the son of man comes in all his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus sees himself as the judge on that day. Jesus also says, and I think this is John, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to who he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Then verse 27, the father has given his son authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The son of man, remember, it was first mentioned back in Daniel. And then John had a vision on the Mount of Transfiguration and sees this glorious figure. Who then sits on the throne, God or the lamb? Yes. Because the lamb sits at the center of the throne in the middle of God on the throne. Whether it's God or Christ is not even a possibility in John's mind. The lamb is never an independent figure, but always lamb as representative of God. God is never a figure different from Christ, but always God who defines himself by Christ. Mm. That was deeper than your response. (laughs) The one who sits on the great white throne is the lamb at the center of God, whose center is the lamb. I'm almost talking in circles. And you wonder why we don't understand. Uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So the next, the next verse, I, I, I read it to you. Earth and heaven flee from the throne. Why? Because they have been so polluted with sin and the powers of evil. It's tragic that God's good earth and God's good heaven feel that they have to flee from their creator because we have so corrupted them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. That's in verse 12 of our text, great and small. That's John's way of saying everyone say everyone. No one is so rich that they can buy their way past the judgment seat. No one is so small or unimportant that they are overlooked. The whole of humanity is brought before the bench. Kings, warriors, free, slave, Small and great, verse 18. There will be no salvation for the special class. The playing field is level for all of us. 
and the books were opened. This is the fifth little point from this passage today. We find the same phrase in the Old Testament in the seventh chapter of Daniel. He records a vision of a great judgment scene in which the Son of Man comes, Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. The Son of Man comes, and it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, the court set, and the books were opened. Books. John is working here with an understanding that, or a belief system that all of our deeds are being kept in a ledger, in books in heaven. It was a long-held idea that our deeds were being recorded. Everything is there. Nothing is forgotten. The court has all the evidence. It's kind of intimidating to set it up this way, but there is, uh, just trust me, hold on, there's a wonderful end. It's all there, your public deeds, your private deeds, your public attitudes, and your private attitudes. The ones you think no one saw except her. You all have a her or a him that you, he, he, nothing is missed. Jesus says there is nothing covered up. This is found in Luke, the 12th chapter. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. The books were opened. It's all there. It's kind of scary. Good and bad. It's all there. The next part. And the dead were judged according to their deeds. And they were judged the 20th chapter, the 13th verse, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. What is this? Judged by their deeds. Are we not justified by faith? And now you're bringing works into the equation? I thought, I thought, uh, I, I, I thought, the, you know, Paul wrote, he, he's, he spent much time Celebrating the fact that we are justified yeah. by faith. But he's telling us that deeds are more serious than we have thought. Deeds, the deeds we do, reveal our values. The deeds reveal our character. The deeds reveal what we really believe. You can say you have faith, but how you act reveals how you really believe. When the New Testament declares the good news that we're justified by faith, it does not mean that deeds do not matter. Romans 2.6, where he speaks of God who in the day of accounting will render to everyone according to his or her deeds. 
First Corinthians, the third chapter and the first verse, each person's work will become evident for the day will show it. Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter, the 10th verse, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his or her deeds in the body according to what he or she has done, whether good or bad. Hmm. So which is it? Is it by faith or deeds? Yes. Because deeds are the fruit of our faith. Every deed emerges from some decision of faith we have made. So there was a Gallup poll done a few years back reporting that 85% of Americans claimed to believe in God. Why then is there so much ungodliness? I just quit watching the news. I can't handle it anymore. I'll flip on on occasion or look over on my Twitter feed, on the Twitter. I'll look over on the Twitter to see if there's anything that I need to pay attention to. Then I might turn on the news to see if I need to be aware. But you know what? I go six weeks not watching the news and I turn it on and it's exactly the same. <laughs> oh, I almost went to Madeline right there. <laughs> Just know that I am exercising discipline. Some 90% say they believed in the Ten Commandments, but not even 10% could name them. Some 65% said they tried to live by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but could not tell you what Jesus says to do in it. This is this legitimate poll. Faith issues in deeds are its dead. Faith without works is dead. By their fruit, you shall know them, Paul said. No, I'm sorry. Paul didn't say that. Jesus said that. And in Matthew 7, I just finished a Paul statement. Now I jumped ahead to Jesus. Matthew 7, 20. By their fruits, you shall know them. It was in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, What we really believe is worked out in how we use our time, how we spend our money. What we give our attention to. On the final day of judgment, the final day of accounting, it will be according to our deeds. Because deeds are the most reliable indicators of what we really believe. So... I'm going to break it down like this. Uh, I, I, in this book, I saw this story. Uh, I'm going to use these books in a few minutes for, for something. <laughs> there are a lot more books in this passage than, than little books like this. There's a lot of details. My details, I don't know if these two books could handle all of my mess-ups and 
my traffic excursions. <laughs> or no, traffic really, I never really had a trouble uh, with traffic. It was usually when I played golf, which is why I stopped playing golf, because <laughs> it makes me want to say things that I shouldn't say. You know, I know I'm about to hit this thing right, and I line it up, and I keep my head down, and my arm is straight, and I go like this, but for some reason, I lift my head instead of keeping it down, and it goes way over there, and a word just kind of slips out of my mouth when that happens. So, so I'm not, I don't go there anymore. I went top golf this week with, with our pastors for our staff meeting, and... Um, I pulled something in my neck, and I kept my tongue. <laughs> I want to give you this scenario from this book. Consider this. You are not feeling well, so you go to the doctor. As you sit in the waiting room, you tell the receptionist, pointing to the doctor's diploma on the wall, I am here because he is the smartest doctor in town. The receptionist says, she agrees and says, he is indeed. Your turn comes to go in and see the doctor. The doctor asks, what is wrong? You tell him the symptoms. He gives you a prescription. Walk one mile a day, stay off caffeine, take three pills every day, and come back in a week. You go out filled with hope. As you leave, you tell the receptionist again, he is the best. I trust him. I want to interject a little personal story. I went to the doctor this week and my, uh, they did my blood work and my sugar numbers are a little high. So I just want to say, please stop bringing me banana pudding. <laughs> it has caught up to me. I think you just need to, uh, you can take a picture of it and send it to me. And, but right now I'm just laying low on the banana pudding. So uh, I'm trying to do what the doctor says because I trust her. The next day, the next day you go home with these instructions and you walk, he, he said to walk a mile a day and take these three pills, but you walk one half mile. This will do, you say to yourself. I mean, the doctor is good, really good, but he doesn't know me as well as I know me. A half a mile will do. Then you go to your office, you go to work, and you drink one can of Diet Dr. Pepper. Just one. You say to yourself, gee whiz, what harm will one do? I mean, it's not Coke after all. And you take only two of the three pills. You say to yourself, seems like enough. The next day you do the same. And the next day you also do the same thing until the day before the return visit when you walk three quarters of a mile and take all three pills. You go for your checkup. How are you feeling? He asks. Not so good, you reply. Oh dear, my prescription usually works, says the doctor. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Did you do what I told you to do? Do? 
do. Do what? What I told you to do. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah, sort of. Did you walk a mile each day? Sort of. What's this sort of? Well, I walked half a mile, but yesterday, three quarters of a mile. I said a whole mile. I know. And you stayed away from caffeine? Sort of. Sort of. I only drank one can a day. Diet Dr. Pepper and before 4 p.m. so it wouldn't affect my sleep. I said no caffeine. I know. Tell me, do you trust me? Yes, you're the smartest doctor in town. I'd be a fool not to trust you. As you say. Did you take the three pills every day? Sort of. I only took two. I said three. I know. I thought you trusted me. I thought you had faith in me. I do. No, you don't. What do you mean? How can you judge whether I believe in you or not? Because if you trusted me, you would do what I told you. That's a great story to share with you before I read Luke 6 46 Jesus asks us why do you call me Lord Lord and don't do what I say all the books were opened and they were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds because deeds reveal what they really believe. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. It's in verse 12 of the 20th chapter. Thank God for the other book. According to Revelations 13, the eighth verse, this is crazy what I'm about to tell you. The names written in it were written before the foundation of the world. Huh? Sort of. (laughs) Those names were written there before anyone whose name is written on the book could even believe or act on it. It's a great mystery. The Lamb has written names in his book, names to those to whom he gives life. It's the book of life. It's the book about life. This is, this is you know, we could, we could certainly debate theology here and on, the, on this passage. What is going on? Well, the, the simple truth is God is in the eternal realm. There is no time. And so he sees the end from the beginning and he sees the beginning from the end and he is all knowing. And yes, it is our choice, but he knows what we're going to choose. Everybody say, dang, Gina. (laughs) Okay. I'm almost to my final point. Those whose names were not in the book were thrown into the lake of fire. Ugh. Is there such a lake? 
Is there such a lake out there in the universe somewhere? Or in another dimension? A real lake? Is there a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns? John gives us some incredible pictures. Or a red dragon? The lake of fire symbolizes the state of being marked by deep regret and searing anguish. We believe in the lake of fire. Those who die in their sins do not pass into nothingness. There is a time beyond death. Time for the damned. Uh, It's not an easy subject to discuss. And it's because there is such a thing as time beyond that hell is so terrible. This is the second death, says John in the 14th verse of the 20th chapter. John uses the term. These are some interesting things and some information I'll just throw out and I'll try to land. He uses the term second death four times in the book. In the second chapter of the 11th verse, the 20th chapter, verse 6, and then verse 14, the 21st chapter in the 8th verse. But interestingly enough, he never uses the term first death. He uses the term first resurrection twice in the 20th chapter, verses 5 and 6. Tanner used those scriptures last week. But he never uses the term second resurrection. He only uses the term first resurrection and second death. Just just all of this imagery. God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. What are you saying to us? Philippians 3.21, Jesus says, or Paul says that Jesus will transfer the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52 says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. I maybe should say that loud. At the last trumpet! What does all of this mean for us? Books. Two books. Our book and his book. When I say our book, there are billions of books piled up in ledgers, stored, waiting for that great day. It's good news. Really? I'm waiting for the good news. I remember watching this movie once called Crimes of the Heart. Anybody ever see that movie with Sissy Spacek and Diane Keaton and Jessica Lange? And uh, you you saw this? You're too young to have seen it. You must have really wanted to see Crimes of the Heart. I love Southern movies, Southern humor. And these, these three women, sisters who lived with old granddaddy because their parents were deceased. I don't think they ever had a dad and their mother died. And there was this this moment and she was just like about when she's talking about mama dying and the old yellow cat, 
died with her. I won't even tell you how they died, but she said, I know, I know why. I know why mama was afraid of dying alone. She was afraid of seeing those tall angels with high screechy voices with long pointed fingernails and she was just scared of facing it all alone. See, we have this. Did you do good with a Southern accent? Uh, uh, it, it's like, but the truth is, this is, we've shaped ideas of what eternity is going to be then and we become afraid of what he has to t- say to us. And the reason why we live and and urge people to pursue and and you know it's like I, I, okay let me get to this regarding the books on those who believe in Jesus there is a full accounting God has not missed anything on you it's all there line after line notation after notation, awful but good news. Everything that we have confessed has been erased. I love it that he has an eraser. When we repent, I said earlier, you know, God, if I've done anything wrong today, I just ask you to forgive me for it. When you just need to go ahead and say what it is you did. Because it's all there. Everything that we have confessed has been erased and crossed out. What we have confessed, what we have admitted to God as sin and sought mercy for, has been erased. You should see the book on me. It's messy. No, I'll take that back. You shouldn't see the book on me. But it's likely a lot like your book. Entry after entry, failure to trust Jesus after failure to trust Jesus. Inappropriate ways of dealing with things after more inappropriate ways of dealing with things. Line after line, erased, crossed over. First John 1 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9 says, but, everybody say but, if we confess Some of y'all are carnal and you immediately thought, but, (laughs) but John, especially John, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You should see the book on me on every page, sin after sin, confession after confession. And on every page, erasure after erasure. (laughs) Pages stamped with words like forgiven, pardoned, canceled. It's written all in my book. It's all there every time I confess. Every time you bring something to him and say, God, 
I repent. I turn from that. Will you forgive me? And he's got this erasure, this eraser that leaves red marks. Because it's been soaked in blood. And only his blood has the power to erase your sin. Hmm. It's a very messy book, but I love all those red spots. It has lots, my book has lots of blood stains. This leads to the good news. The other book, the Lamb's book, it lists the names but in, more importantly, it lists the deeds of the Lamb. Consider, if our book lists our deeds and his book lists his deeds, what an extraordinary eye-opener. He'll take my book and he'll open it. Then he'll take his book and put it on top of my book and the court will only see the deeds of the Lamb. see most likely on the first page of his book I gotta switch over Isaiah 53 I think this is what's on the first page of his book but he was wounded for our transgressions the deeds of the lamb he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth It's interesting to notice that throughout the book of Revelation, the lamb never speaks. Jesus, when he reveals himself in the beginning and the end, says, I am the Alpha and Omega. But that when the image of the lamb never speaks, he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And I'm going to jump down to verse 11, but I just saw verse 10. It's got to be written in his book. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. His book will rest on top of our books. <laughs> Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Sweet Jesus. The book on me will be opened. And the book on Jesus is going to be opened and placed over the book. And in place of my deeds, the court will see his deeds. What would you say if you were to die tonight and find yourself standing before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you enjoy eternal life with me? I want to rephrase the question built around the images of our text, Revelation 20. When you join the small, the great and the small and stand before the great white throne and God asks you, why should I let you enter the new city, the new heaven and the new, new earth and not cast you into the lake of fire? What will you say? This is what I think I might say on that final day. I'm going to look straight into the heart of the one on the throne. I'm going to look straight into the eyes of the lamb who sits at the heart of the one on the throne. If I can handle it, I'm going to look right in his eyes. If I can keep my composure, And say, Jesus, you see my sins, but Jesus, you shed your blood for me. You claimed me for your own. You wrote my name in your book. And he will say, yes, indeed. I wrote your name in my book. And then I will fall at his feet in a puddle. I'll have great joy. I'll have extreme gratitude. Father, I pray for everyone in the room. I pray for everyone watching 
online that the reality of our finality, the truth is we're all going to die unless you come before. But as human beings, for thousands of years, we've heard, it's been said in, in, in our life, since I was a child, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And I believe you're coming soon. And your soon looks different than my soon. But I trust in your soon. And so if, if, if you don't return in my lifetime, I will see death. But I know that at the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise and it will be as glorious for those that rise as it will be for those that are still alive and remain. And we will stand before you if we're able. I can't fathom being able to stand. But I'll see your eyes. And I will feel the warmth of your smile. I pray that you will speak to our hearts, that you will show us, that you will reveal to us that the end is not scary, but it's beautiful. The end, the, the end is not a frightful thing. The end is an extraordinary beautiful vision of the love of Jesus. John, John wrote about the judgment, but he also said, whoever believes in you will not perish. The same writer. So I hold on to that truth. I will not perish when I stand before you, not because of my deeds, but because of your deeds. Not because of our deeds we'll be able to gather before you, stand before you, but because of what you did. So let this shape us. Let this shape the way we live. Let this shape the way we think as we uh, journey into the final chapters of Revelation. God, let us keep this truth. And, and be comforted, comforted knowing that your love, your blood covers all of our sins, erases all of our sins. And we are now new creatures in Christ. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.com.